Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. My guest today is the wonderful Matt Jer. Matt is a husband, father and team leader who was inspired to create the Sober Friends podcast so that he could share his experience, strength and hope in recovery. Despite being exposed to heavy drinking and the negative impacts of addiction at a young age, Matt struggled to admit he had a problem with drinking because he didn't identify with the old stereotype of an alcoholic. Eventually, he came to realize that he could no longer control his drinking and on the 21st of March 2014, he gave up for good. In making this decision, Matt was able to break the cycle of addiction that has impacted his family for generations. Now, I had the wonderful opportunity of speaking to Matt earlier this year on his podcast, Sober Friends, and I am beyond thrilled to have him joining us here today. So dialing in all the way from the East Coast of the USA, I'd love to welcome Matt onto the show. Matt, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today? Well, I'm great after that introduction. Man, that made me feel special. That was that was not- the best introduction I've ever had. If only we could have one of those every time we walked into a room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? Or maybe you could play it as you woke up in the morning just to get yourself going. <laughs> Probably after two, I'd say, I'm not worth this. No. <laughs> now I'm annoyed by this. I'm not worth it. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's too much. But you know what? It's all true. Every word of it is yeah. true. So well-deserved, well-deserved. I have to say, Matt, before we kick off anything today, I just want to let our audience know that you are one of the nicest people I have ever met in my life. You are so authentic. Yes, it's just true. You are so authentic. You are so genuine. And you are such a champion for other people within this space. So I just wanted to kick off with a big thank you and a warm open heart. Well, you're welcome. You're one of the people who I think are one of the great people in this community. There are there are some, it's a small percentage in this community who don't have the best of intentions and they're selling this and some of the stuff they're selling isn't the greatest and don't have the greatest message. That's not you. You have amazing content. The way you think out your questions, you're one of those people I'm just rooting for. Don't get burnt out by this. Keep going because this is an excellent show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matt. And likewise, every time I see you doing amazing things, which is all the time, I just have this little moment of glee and joy. So it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great to be in each other's corners. All right. Now that the love bubble is done, we can (laughs) kick into the show. How are you? What's been going on in your world? I've been busy. Uh, Work is chaotic right now. Mm. I guess the family is okay, but the work stuff has been chaotic. It is one of these things that if I didn't have sober tools, this would be very difficult. And I'm trying to take a step back from some of the work stuff because I get in my own head when I start to feel as though things are not going well or, oh, my God, everything is falling apart. Then I think, but I know my own thinking. 
Mm. And I don't trust my own thinking. Mm. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. So interesting to hear that at, you know, nine years sober or like coming up to 10 years really, really soon mm. that you can yeah. still question your own thinking. I think that's really, yeah. that's really powerful to hear. Well, the questioning my own thinking, I look as a positive because in the past I wouldn't have. Now it's like, okay, I have these tools and I'm feeling something. Is mm. what I'm feeling real? Mm. Do I just need another good night's sleep? Yes. Questioning the conditioned thought. I yeah. always talk about this with clients in particular because we have this thought, right? And it's our first thought, but we're not responsible for our first thought. We are responsible for our second. And it's like in that moment of pause, just asking yourself, is this actually true? Because I know it's coming from my voice and sometimes it can be really convincing and really loud, but that doesn't mean that it's true, especially when it's the first thought that's popped into my head, because that may have been two decades of conditioning that yeah. has brought that thought to the forefront. Yeah. I had an experience with a family member over the weekend where out of nowhere, they said something incredibly offensive to me and I wasn't prepared for it. And as I'm seeing this person, as the words are falling out of their mouth, I was, I could see my grandfather who was terrible to me as a kid. And I'm realizing that as I'm hearing this awful thing that this person is saying, that this is trauma coming up from the past. And it really shook mm -hmm. me that night, but I put mm -hmm. it together around this is trusted person, saw my grandfather, connected the dots, and I went from being 47 years old to five years old in a second. Wow. How unbelievable. Like, it's just such a testament to the amount of work that you've done mm -hmm. in your recovery. I can tell yeah. from the very top that you can have so much awareness around that stuff. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that helped. Again, mm -hmm. got a good night's sleep. I'm like, I'm going to put this aside. I may be feeling something today. I'm going to get a good night's sleep. Let's see how I feel tomorrow. And the next day was totally different. I'm like, oh, I feel normal again. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the, the lid goes back on, you know, because our, he our heads can blow when things like that happen. And it's yes. like, all right, hang on a minute. Let's just pause. No need to react. I'm going to get a good night's sleep. I'm going to calm my nervous system. And then tomorrow I can actually respond. Right. Yeah. One so of the things powerful. that I do with my team, because my team gets a lot of recovery wisdom without knowing it. And I had somebody come back to me at work and they, it was the greatest thing they could have said to me is they said, you know, I was freaked out about this, but I thought about what you tell me, what's in my circle of control. Can I control what I'm worried about? And I realized what that was, was outside my circle of control and help move me forward, which they don't realize is a lot of 12 step wisdom that I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm unpacking the serenity prayer for them and they're totally. buying into it and they have no idea. This is the thing I sometimes think like if only, well, there pretty much is a 12 step program these days for almost anything. But yeah. if everyone could just go and find one that they felt was relative to them, whether that be, oh my gosh, it could be anything. It doesn't need to be alcohol or drugs or sex or gambling. It could be honestly anything, just the foundations of the 12 steps. There are designed for living. Like mm -hmm. anybody can get a benefit of just applying these spiritual principles into their life. Yep. I am finding that because one of the things that we have talked about on our podcast is the curiosity around the people who get recovery other ways, be it like something like a recovery elevator program or our fr friend Jill Teets, who has her own type of fellowship where it's like a mm -hmm. Patreon type thing. But if you really break down what they're doing, they're doing the steps. They may not call it that, 
But <laughs> and like I was talking to Jill recently, I talked to her a lot where she's like, I have this resentment, I have this resentment, I have this resentment. And then she will tell me something about, well, this is how I'm working on it. I'm like, you're, you know, you're doing step work. You know, you're kind <laughs> yes. of, you wrote down your resentment. You're telling me you have this resentment. So you're doing a step five with me and then you're going to move into six, seven, eight, and nine. So that's the yeah. thing I find the commonality. And hey, if you don't call it that and it works for you and you're happy and you're not drinking, then that's all that matters to me. Yeah, that's exactly it. I was actually chatting to our mutual friend, Mary, about this just last week. It's like, yep. you know, whatever way you need to get there, however that works for you, I am 100% supportive. Just please don't go around shitting on ideas or programs that you know nothing about right yeah. oh i see i see a lot of that on social media i'm like uh. oh it's crazy isn't it it's one yep. of the things that's really taken me back in this short amount of time you know i've been in the space for just a little over a year now as you know and i thought i'd meet a lot more people who shared my approach to sobriety and it's actually not been the case it's i feel like i'm very much in the minority sometimes being mm -hmm, that too. i'm part of 12 step and you know vocal about my own journey and and my support for that program in saying that like i just said and i know you feel the same it's like whatever's gonna work at the end of the right. day i just want you to be healthy happy and sober I think it's also immersion in the podcast world immersion in the social media world instagram TikTok. I don't think so going into meetings, I have talked to people about this podcast and the follow up question I usually get is, well, what's a podcast? So mm -hmm. I don't know how many AA people really are into the podcast world. I don't know how many people in a 12 step fellowship are really into recovery via Instagram or TikTok. Mm -hmm. The people who are hooked into that stuff may not be as in the mix with something like AA. So if we're getting feedback from those people, we might be getting a false negative. Yeah. self-selection. Yeah, that's so true. And the other thing I was thinking about, Matt, before we jumped on here this morning, I know it's late afternoon for you and an early morning here for me, I was getting ready and I was thinking about that whole notion behind attraction, not promotion. And I think it's another reason why people don't hear a lot about 12-step fellowship or they don't hear people getting on their soapboxes promoting it because we're told not to. Right. That's part of our traditions is not to get up there and, and say, but you're wrong and AA is amazing and all that kind of stuff. Like it's very much attraction, not promotion. If you want what we've got, come check it out and we can show you the way. So it's another interesting thing is it's almost not an unfair competition, but you've got people that are on social media being very loud, right? arguing a certain point, and then we're kind of sitting back going, okay, you can have your point. We're going to continue doing what we're doing because we know it works. Right. It works for us. Exactly. That's what works for me. And it's, exactly. and it's convenient for me. That's the other thing. I can just go drive down the street. And if I don't have a dollar, I don't have to put any money in the basket. That's a yeah. lot of flexibility. That's so true, isn't it? Yeah. Anybody can walk in. The only requirement is a desire to stop drinking, right? So you could be on, and I'm only using Recovery Elevator because it's top of mind. I know they have their own fellowship that you can pay for. Mm. There's no reason that you can't just say, okay, I'm deciding I'm not going to work any steps, but I don't want to drink. 
And I just kind of want to meet some people in recovery. So I'm going to go hang out at a meeting every week. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to listen and hang out and make some friends. But that's all I want to do. Hey, guess what? The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. So you're doing it right. You're going to get more out of it if you follow everything. But no, nobody's ever going to kick you out for just saying, I just want to hang out here for an hour. Yeah. That's okay. Mm, yeah. And that connection point that you make, just meeting other sober people, because I think yes. that's one of the biggest challenges. And it's been one of the main things in my recovery that's really taken me from being sober and just existing to being sober and flourishing and thriving in sobriety and being so happy that I'm sober. It really is that connection with others that makes a difference. I think sober and existing really is being dry. And mm -hmm. I've had those periods before where I stopped drinking, but I was dry. I can't do this alone. For whatever reason, the magic happens when I'm doing this with other people and we're talking about this stuff. And the magic there is, well, with technology, you're on the completely other side of the planet on another day from me, but mm -hmm. we can have this quick conversation and get right into it because the only thing that matters in our commonality is sobriety. Now, if there's other things that we find we have commonality with, that's even greater. Mm. But as long as you have commonality with that, I want to stay sober. That's enough. Yeah. It's also huge, isn't it? Like at the end of the day, we're both here to save our lives. Yeah. And I, that's what I love about meeting people in recovery it's like and also like i'm just like wow i know that you've walked a path i know that you've been through stuff and you're here on the other side and for that i respect you as mm -hmm. well and it's important to not compare that path because it can be well my path wasn't as hard as that maybe i should go out drinking or well your path is so different than mine i no, it doesn't matter what your path is if this was causing you pain and you needed to stop to get better the path doesn't matter. It's just the fact that we got to the destination. Same destination. Path doesn't matter. Mm. Oh, it's so true, isn't it? Yeah, there's nothing. You, there's no way you can go and start comparing because that's just a way to get stuck in that analysis mm -hmm. paralysis. It really is. Everybody's journey looks different. Yeah. Speaking of journeys, Matt, I've asked you to bring in a photo today. Now, this is a photo from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So you were presenting one version of yourself to the outside world, but the reality was internally you were struggling. Could you please describe for our listeners, what am I looking at with this photo and what was going on for you at that time in your life? All right, so this is a photo from 21 years ago, I believe. Wow. Uh, I'm, I'm a hell of a lot thinner in this picture than I am today, and it's me at a winery in Napa. So it's at the Opus One Winery in Napa, just outside of where Mondavi made wine. So at the time, it was a joint venture between Robert Mondavi and the Rothschild family of France, where they were trying to build, they're trying to create a a Bordeaux-style wine in California. And it was kind of a dream to mm. get there. And the tastings that we had after we went through the whole winery, it was like, it was like $20 a taste. And you got like half a glass. Wow. But it's, it's an, so if you want to get a taste of Opus One, which if you're listening to this, put it out of your mind. But if you want to, <laughs> it's like you either spend $150 for a bottle, which was not going to happen, or it's $20 for a tasting. Mm -hmm. which 
was not terrible and I'm holding that glass and it's sort of like the, the, the highest of high that I'm there. But in reality, this wasn't a great time. I was talking myself out of my addiction. I didn't have an addiction because I was spending $20 on Opus One in mm. Napa Valley. Those are not alcoholics. That's a wine connoisseur. But it just mm-hmm. was indicative. I was in a very bad job at the time. I had just started dating who is my wife now. So that was a good thing. But it just was a cover up. And, and it was, it was, it, I mean, it is the perfect question for what you talk about on this podcast being behind the smile. That is a mask I'm wearing of the person I wanted to be, not the person I was. And I just felt like I always was running away from who I was instead of who I wanted to be. Mm. So who was the real you at that moment in time? Someone very scared. Mm. I'd say even around people alone, less than other people. Definitely not a lot of self-esteem. And I had to pump myself up with knowledge for you to be impressed by me, which nobody likes those people. Anyways, it's, it's so silly that we think that way. We've got to do something to be impressive and it never works out. But I just felt so low and so less than and no weight that I had to overcompensate. Mm. And I'd say it just got worse from there. Yeah. And what did your drinking look like at that time? Was it manageable at that point or was it already starting to escalate to a point where you couldn't control it? No, it was escalating. If I was going to drink, it was going to be difficult to stop. I think we had one or two glasses there. So I don't remember this going out of control, but I definitely felt even with these $20 glasses, I'd like to have more, but I know I'm not going to be able to. So I'm going to have to hold myself at bay, but it was definitely a case of if the bottle of wine was open and you poured me a glass, I'm going to want more. I just don't feel like I ever had a point in my life where I felt differently. Not that I can remember. Mm. And it's something that I've I've heard you talk about before and I really identify to this is that if I had to control my drinking, I didn't enjoy my drinking. Right. Yeah, that's what that reminded me of just then. Like the idea of having two glasses of wine and then having to get back in the car and go home or dr- or just stop, that is I feel physically uncomfortable because I can yeah. remember that feeling and it was I'd rather have none to be honest. There were a lot of times where I had none in those situations because I thought ahead. In the situations where I had none, I would beat myself up because I felt as though I am missing an opportunity. It's like you go into the store and there are expensive products that are there for free that you could walk away with, but you're choosing not to grab something for free with value. There were a lot of times where I just looked and said, at this point, I don't know what's going to happen if I drink. I am better off if I just don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What about your mental health? What was going on there at the time? I would say at the time I thought I had depression. I realized that, and this is a recent thing that I've realized I have anxiety. Depression is more of a secondary thing from that. Depression is like the collapse after anxiety, but there was constant anxiety going on. I also had money issues. I wasn't making a lot of money. I was Mm -hmm. piling up debt. So I had constant anxiety about the debt load I had. 
Wow. So I imagine that your nervous system would have been quite dysregulated because you would have been living in a constant state of fight and flight. Oh, constant. It was uh, the best way to describe it is you might as well just put jumper cables on me all the time. I, and this is something I deal with today, but my default was worry. And if I had nothing to worry about, I would sit there and think about there's got to be something I have to worry about. Something's wrong that I'm not worried. Let's go through the list. And lo and behold, I'd find something to be worried about. Mm, Of course, because if you're searching for it, you'll eventually find it. Oh, yeah. So did this programming to search out worry come from your childhood? Oh, it probably did. My childhood was a mess. And I have been recently working through some trauma as a child. For whatever reason, I started thinking about when I lived in a different town prior to 1985. I lived in a a poor town, second floor of a two-family house. But I remembered that there were a lot of children and families in that neighborhood. So there was a lot of life there. I remember feeling well-adjusted in the school And we moved to get me into a better school system, but the neighborhood was different. It was much wealthier and everything changed there. And I don't, and I thought back, I'm like, I don't remember like crying or being upset at the move. And I think that's part of the trauma. Cause I remember I had very good handwriting and I was a very good speller. Mm. When I moved within a couple of weeks, my handwriting was atrocious and I couldn't spell anymore. And it escaped me. Why is this the case? And the only thing I can think of was there's trauma at that move. Something traumatic happened that I must not have been dealing with. It's mm-hmm. the only thing I can think of that I lost the ability to spell. I lost mm-hmm. the ability to write nicely. I mean, it was bad. I struggled with remembering my homework assignments. I had to have a little notebook to write down all my assignments because I couldn't remember things anymore. Mm-hmm. I would imagine around this time it probably kicked into... ADHD. I recently got diagnosed with ADHD because I kind of pushed it, talked to my doctor. It is the least surprising diagnosis of my life. I think I already (laughs) knew, but at least I know, okay, if I have this, I can do something about it. Yeah. And so there was trauma there. My mom was a single mom. My dad was physically abusive to her. She didn't have a job. We were on food stamps. We had We just, we had nothing. And I was shuffled family to family, friends to friends to watch me to cover for her. And I just think that's probably where the worry came from. I never felt welcomed. I I had, I had family members as a young child, young child who would quote accidentally burn me with cigarette butts. Like I have, I, I would get burnt all the time and it was fun for them. I had a sadistic family around me. I used to, my grandfather, I was impressed that my grandfather could swim back and forth underwater and I couldn't. And I'd ask him, how do you do that? And he goes, oh, it's simple. I breathe underwater. I just inhale. You should try that. So yeah, lots of, lots of worry is going to come from that. Of course. That's just trauma after trauma. And a child inherently needs to feel safe to be able to develop. Yeah, I never felt safe. Yeah. Wow, that really makes a lot of sense. So I know that there was alcohol present as you were growing up. When did you actually start drinking? I started drinking 16. Maybe I was 16 Mm -hmm. years old, got into a fight with my mother, 
And I said, screw this. I'm going to give my money in because we were making a package store run. We were, somebody was going to go get us alcohol, which the process is go to a bad part of the nearest city, pay a homeless guy to go in and buy the booze and bring it out. And then he keeps a portion or we buy him something and we get what we get. And I think we had 40 ounce bottles of Budweiser, something mm-hmm. like that. And that was the first time I had a drink and I, I didn't like it. And I, I think it took a few times of getting booze to feel something because it was like the lock that you can't unlock. You have to find that the right way to jiggle it so it opens. When I figured out what I was looking for, that's where I definitely became an alcoholic. Because I remember shortly thereafter seeing one open bottle of beer somewhere and thinking to myself, why would anybody drink one bottle of beer? What's the point? You don't even feel anything from that. And I was in my teens when I thought that. And is so is that what you were looking for, that shift in your emotional state? I don't know what I was looking for getting booze. So I'll back up a second. I heard a friend of mine told me you could get high from huffing rubber cement. And I remember we were going to go do that. That sounded like a good idea for me as like a 13, 14 year old. That's not good thinking. That's good alcoholic thinking before like who thinks that way. Sniffing rubber cement will get, that's a great idea. Let's try that. Yeah. I could have fried my brain doing it. Thankfully I didn't. Mm -hmm. I think it was when I had booze, I felt like I belonged. I felt like an adult. I felt like I had escaped that I, I just, best way to describe it. I found the answer. Mm-hmm. Whatever the answer was, I found the answer when I was drinking. Mm. So you started that exploration around the age of 16. And as many people know who are in recovery, the disease of addiction is progressive. We don't very rarely do we start off from that first drink drinking like alcoholics, although I did drink to blackout my very first time. But for me, it took about 20 years before it just my life imploded. What did that progression look like for you, Matt? Well, I, I, I got at it in college. That's definitely the case. In, so the, the drinking age in the United States is 21 we could get into bars when I went to college, if we had a college ID. So I went to college at 17. That in oh, and of wow. itself is, is trauma because my mother started me. I'm a, I'm a November baby. So I'm like right on that edge of, do you hold them back? Do you send them? And she sent me at a young age, which she should not have. So I was really a year younger than all the other kids. So mm-hmm. he's, but Matthew, you're so smart. You can't, you're just so smart. They didn't want me to go into kindergarten. No, he's just so smart. We have to stand you. So I went into college at 17, got right into the bar scene, didn't like beer at first. So it was whatever the shots were that I knew. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of rumple mints, a lot of Goldschlager because that's what I knew. And I would just shot after shot after shot. I joined a fraternity because I wanted to belong in pledging a fraternity. I ended up with alcohol poisoning. So I'm out. The next memory I have, I'm waking up in a hospital with an IV in my arm and my pretty white shirt was totally disgusting. Like it had just been through a war and somebody came over. Yeah. You had alcohol poison. You're lucky to be alive. 
you're lucky that your friends thought enough to bring you to the hospital. That's insane. And I was, I became kind of well-known from that. And I thought, this is a good thing. Wow. I have some notoriety from this. I should have been yeah. appalled. I got hauled into the Dean's office. Uh, I was smart enough to talk my way out of expulsion or trouble, but I, I ended my way through that lot of drinking in college. Remember a lot of times pain, like in my kidney area, especially after drinking in my early twenties. Mm. Mm. And none of this is stopping you, right? You're just like, all right, no. well, like well, I'll have to deal with it. Yeah. That was an experience. Let me do that again. I remember in college thinking this would be great if I didn't have to drink, how life could be better, but I can't wow. do that. Wow. So that's early on to have that, that thought around alcohol. Yes. Why couldn't you do it? What was the voice saying? What was the reason why you couldn't possibly get sober? Well, I'll never meet a girl if I am not <laughs> drinking. How am I going to go to a bar sober? You know, my friends do all this. I'm not going to have any friends. I'm going to be alone. It's just not possible. I, I, there was all these things in the world. It's just not possible not to drink. And by the end of college, I was doing a lot of drinking by myself. Yeah. And that's where the drinking by myself started and continued into adulthood. That was my MO. Yeah. But you continued to tick all of life's boxes, didn't you? Like you graduated, yeah. you got a great job, you found, you met your wife and got married. I, I almost got thrown out of college for academic probation. And at that point, I turned it around. I started eating better. I started exercising. Uh, I got pissed off at myself and said, okay, I shouldn't be in this position. Each semester thereafter, I missed the dean's list by like 0 0.1 points every single time. I turned everything around after I almost got thrown out. So I had this drive that I could do the things I wanted to do that became almost, I could block out everything else. And if there was something that I needed to do, I would get it done. That eluded me when it came to drinking. Mm. The drinking was uncontrollable. Couldn't stop that. If I wanted to achieve something, I could put all my energy into getting that done. It's also, uh, I mean, I hear this all the time and, it just fascinates me because we assume, for me, that's the disease at play, allowing us to be highly successful in all other areas of our lives because we right. couldn't, I, I'll speak for myself, my mind was I can't possibly be an alcoholic because look at everything that I'm achieving. You know, got the degree, got the house, got the husband, all these things, tick, tick, tick. Yet, you ask me to open a bottle of champagne and stop after two glasses. I could not do it. I just <laughs> finished. I just finished reading a book about Freddie Mercury. So Freddie Mercury is my favorite singer of all time. Queen is my mm -hmm. favorite band of all time. It's my default band. Yes. And it's hard to get good information about Freddie growing up and Freddie's life and stuff because he just was so private. And in this book, it talked a lot about when he came out and decided he's going to embrace being gay. It was right into the club scene, lots of cocaine, lots of alcohol, crazy parties where you're seeing this behavior with him of, if you come from our perspective, guy clearly had a sex and love addiction. 
because if you read through about why he was having all of these affairs, it was he would find a guy every single night on the road because he didn't want to be alone. Mm. That's a sex and love addiction thing. The cocaine, yeah. the alcohol use. And this is a guy who was wildly successful, multimillionaire, and to the point where even having AIDS and being sick and dying was single-minded of continuing to write music, perform music up until a couple months before he died. So you see in there this drive, this success, I am going to focus everything on this to the point where he's probably more successful today than he was in his lifetime. And yet mm. that other piece was part of his downfall mm. around loneliness. It's that spiritual sickness, isn't yeah. it? You know, like we, we can talk about the physical sickness, the mental sickness, but it's that hole in the soul, that spiritual malady that drives us to do all these kind of crazy things despite the consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So Matt, what was the catalyst then for you getting sober? Because it doesn't sound like drinking was very much fun, particularly by the end of it when you were doing it alone a lot of the time. It was a hamster wheel. It was a hamster on a hamster wheel. And there was the mental obsession and mental torture. I had taken countless online quizzes around, am I an alcoholic? And no matter how I filled these out, I failed every single time. My mind told me, well, society's just changed and they believe that any type of alcohol consumption means you're an alcoholic. So I talked myself out of it. But I always had that in the mind and I had periods of time where I'm not drinking and then the one time I had that drink after not drinking, I couldn't get back to it. So I was watching the show Switched at Birth, which was a cable TV show where one of the characters was a recovering alcoholic. And she gets into an unhealthy relationship. He's a bartender. He passes her a drink. And she has a look on her face like, I'm doing something that's not smart. She takes the drink and her face changes. And I looked right there and said, I am like that. I am an alcoholic, just like her. And the thing that was my bottom was the realization that I had this disease and I had this very serious problem that my father had, my stepfather had, and other people in my family. And it was disgusting to me to be like them. It mm -hmm. took many years to figure out that's what the real thing was, but it was realizing I was an alcoholic was enough for me to stop. If I realized I'm an alcoholic, that's enough. I can't be that way. I'm disgusted mm -hmm. by having this problem and I've got to stop. And it all happened in like a second. And I remember at that moment, it was like my whole body was on fire. That was the worst craving for alcohol I ever had in my life. But I realized if I'm going to stop, I have to change everything in my life. The alcohol problem is really the smallest part of it. And I had never thought that way before. Wow. So... I have to know, was your wife at the time asking you to stop or was this 100% nope. so this was 100% your decision? I, I had to tell her. I told wow. people and they they didn't believe me. They couldn't understand. We've never seen this. So years later, she did tell me her mother said to her once, I'm worried about Matt's drinking. I think he drinks too much. I think it was willful ignorance on my wife's part. Mm-hmm willful or unwillful. But then again, I hit a lot of my drinking and I knew a whole bunch of tricks that did it in a way people wouldn't notice. 
And if you're around the person, it becomes what you do. My wife barely ever drinks. She is for an alcoholic. She is the alcoholic's nightmare seeing her drink because she'll say, I want to drink, but I don't want that. Cause then I'll be, I won't sleep. Well, I'll have a headache tomorrow <laughs> or, Oh, I really need this wine. And she'll pour a glass and she'll have a couple of sips. And I, Oh, well, do you want this? I just can't drink anymore. I'm like, you've had two sips. Yeah. But if I have the third sip, I'm going to have a headache. I'm going to feel awful. I'm not going to enjoy like, myself. <laughs> That's the type of person. She, so if it's like, I'm going to get rid of the alcohol in the house and I'm just not going to drink at home. She could go years without a drink just because it's not important to her. She's not trying. It's just, eh, it's not important. From an alcoholic's perspective, that's madness. It's inconceivable, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's interesting, though, my experience as well was that it was much easier to hide it from people who are moderate temperate drinkers. It was other alcoholics who could see my sneaky behavior. They could see what was going on even more than I could see it. These are sober alcoholics, I should point out. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's really interesting. It's like people that don't drink or that, yeah, they don't even think about it or see it. So it's much easier to kind of get away and hide it, I think, as well. I, I really do understand what you were saying there. I'll tell you the tricks I learned. I learned around boxed wine. If you get a box of wine and you don't hide it. What you do is you just you just casually walk over and you top off your glass. Because if you casually do something, nobody's really watching it. Mm. So I would casually constantly top off my glass. So I only had one glass. You only saw me finish one glass. But I probably had four because I just kept topping it off. Mm. Mm. Oh my God, the tricks, the tricks. It's just crazy. That's where I had progressed. It was the tricks that really built up towards the end. Yeah. And then there's that constant, you're not only lying to your loved ones, but you're lying to yourself. And oh, that's absolutely. just so destructive for your self-esteem. Absolutely. And, and then having anxiety already doesn't help with somebody. So it is destroying my mental health. I'm on antidepressants. I found out after the fact that I could have had a seizure. Like antidepressants and taking alcohol is like, hey, I've got this big bucket of gasoline. Anybody got matches that we can just throw at it? That's like the worst thing I could have done. Yeah, yeah, same. I was the same and I had no idea. I think it's something that's so misunderstood because we're not talking about it enough because of the stigma. But to drink alcohol when you're taking antidepressants is just so counterintuitive. Yeah, you're fighting against the medication and the reaction that alcohol can have with many antidepressants can be incredibly serious. You really shouldn't drink anything if you're on an antidepressant. Mm, mm. Yeah, thank you for highlighting that. I think it's really important for people to, to hear that message. So Matt, you come to this point in your life where you realize I'm an alcoholic and I do not want to repeat generations of this behavior that's gone through the male side of your family, it sounds like. What did you do next? Nothing. I just didn't drink. I'm just not going to drink here, which was the hardest period of being dry I've ever had because I was in a lot of places where I would typically drink and people were questioning, well, why aren't you drinking? I just don't want it. Mm -hmm. And so I did nothing. And my problem was if I said anything to somebody I can't take it back. 
the toothpaste is out of the tube. And I had two real concerns with talking to people about it. Either they're going to say, yeah, you really are an alcoholic. And that would be bone crushing to me. Don't tell me. It's sort of like, do I look fat in this outfit? Yeah, you do. Well, you weren't not supposed to say that to me. <laughs> or they would say to me, no, I think you're being silly. Like either way, there's no answer they could have given that was going to be good. I reached out to an ex-girlfriend. And the reason I did that is she got sober six months before. Uh, no, it wasn't even six months. It was three months before me. And I remember how she drank and she was being very open up front of, I'm sober now. I'm sober now. I didn't know who else to reach out to. So I reached out to her and her mm -hmm. answer was, if you thought about going to a meeting, like, no, why would I do that? Well, maybe you should try that. Talk to your therapist. So I went in and I talked to my therapist and he didn't give me an answer either way. He asked a bunch of questions. I could tell he's going through the manual. And he <laughs> said to me, well, why don't you go to a meeting? So it's the second person saying, going to a meeting. And I go, well, I, I don't know. I hadn't thought of it. He's like, well, what do you have to lose? He goes, you're, I go, I would be uncomfortable. He goes, yeah, I'd say by the first nine times you go to a meeting, it's going to be very uncomfortable, but mm. it would be helpful if you're concerned about this to go to a meeting and figure it out for yourself. So I didn't get the answer either when I was either that I was looking for of you need to tell me. And if you tell me, I'm going to be greatly offended. So I went and I got, I, I'm probably wearing a shirt very much like I'm wearing now. Because uh, in the business world, you go to a meeting, you, you dress nicely. I was in business casual. I had a nice button down. Uh, I had slacks on, dress shoes. And I drove into this very not nice neighborhood outside of Hartford, Connecticut. And I walked in there and to tell you I was overdressed would be <laughs> the understatement of the year. So I looked up online meetings and being literal and scientific, I'm looking at this stuff and say, you know, open, well, open meeting. Maybe it's an open meeting I go to because I, I'm not in the club yet. Closed meetings are for people in the club and I'm not that serious. And, oh, they have a beginner meeting. So I figured if I went to a beginner meeting, there would be like a table up front where, you know, somebody would walk you through his orientation. There's paperwork you fill out <laughs> and they... They teach you how to do this. That's and that's awesome. not at all what I found. I found a bunch of people who lived in sober houses there. And mm. in my mind, it was a hot mess because there were people who just couldn't stay sober. Mm. And there was nobody like me there. It freaked me out. So I went to that beginner meeting twice. I'm like, I don't know if this is for me, but I'll, I'll keep going. I knew the Lord's prayer. So in the meeting, I did raise my hand and said, I'm scared out of my mind. I didn't know anything else, but I knew the Lord's prayer. And I tried to get out of there and they stopped me. And they said, hey, come on over here. We'd like to get to know you. And they talked to me and they said, you know, one of the guys here never came back and he left his book behind. Do you want the book? Do you have a book? So that's still my book. That's the book I got from that day. Wow. And everybody was nice to me. And I never had that experience with new people that they made an effort to know who I was. And they introduced me to everybody. And it just was really nice that these people who I didn't know who walking in there, I really looked down upon because I'm all dressed up. And these people were clearly hurting and not at my level 
where they were nice to me and that changed everything. I found a men's meeting that I went to shortly thereafter. And so this is a fun story. It was a bigger church. I didn't know where to walk in. There's like a very large gymnasium there where, where people are playing basketball. I walk kind of like walk through there. I heard some voices. So I walked into the room and it was a boy scout meeting and they all just looked at me and I didn't know what to say. Cause the only thing I could think of saying is where's the AA meeting. So what do I do in front of this cub scout meeting? Do I say, where's the AA meeting to, <laughs> you know, these eight year old boys and the one parent and his, and his little, you know, handkerchief around his neck. I just like, I can't say anything. I just have to run away. I followed where I heard some sounds. I wasn't sure it was the right place because it sounded like a party and it sounded like people were happy. And that's not how I viewed AA. And so there's like 50 men in this room. It's loud. There are people milling about. Everybody's having a good time. And that was not what I was expecting. Yeah. And there's another one where somebody pulled me aside and said, hey, I'm having trouble with my my phone. You look like somebody who might be able to help me with this. What do you think? And I, the, the person who chaired the meeting was 40 something years sober, but he had my story. He said, I could have two beers and I could stop, but I was miserable and I didn't drink mm -hmm. every time. But when mm -hmm. I did, I was out of control and I'm like, I'm at the right place. Yeah. That identification, there's just nothing more powerful, is there? No, no. And that's, mm. that's very helpful. And it was hard because the guy I sat next to literally when he stopped drinking, fell into the ER. He was bleeding from every opening on his body. And that was not my thing. He couldn't see, he couldn't hear. And that was not my story. But to hear somebody saying with great power, I could control it, but I didn't want to. I'm like, okay. Mm. I'm on the right path mm. and he seems somewhat happy now and he's been sober decades. Yeah. Such a good point. Isn't it? I had that same misconception that 12 step fellowship would just be full of these miserable people who weren't able to drink anymore and how boring their lives must be. And mm -hmm. I just, they're the happiest, most genuine, authentic people I've ever met in my life. Like I just couldn't have been further from the truth. Right. Matt, how has 12-step influenced your life as a whole and your recovery? Like you described those early days of being sober as being dry. So we call that sort of bit like being a dry drunk. And that sounded really uncomfortable and really lonely. Very much what so. Has, what has that connection to a 12-step fellowship given you throughout it, your life? It has given me the ability to be vulnerable. If you mm. want to get sober learn to trust and learn to be vulnerable. If you get burnt, you get burnt, but you're not going to gain anything unless you're vulnerable with somebody and to take instructions and to do some things that are uncomfortable. Started, you know, going on car trips with other men to do things that I don't know, I never would have done before just because I wanted to belong and I wanted to do this well the success factors kicked in that if I'm going to do this, I have to be the best at it than anybody has ever been. And I am going to graduate at the top of my class and also just <laughs> jumping into the steps. Now, when I jumped in again, I was an overachiever and I had a, an Excel document and a grid for everything, which <laughs> if I did it over again, I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm going to write stuff down on the legal pad. That's it. But it was, following the directions, read the book, talk to people, make the phone calls. I found the structure 
And it's how I live my life. I am not one of these people who is spouting off big book quotes everywhere I go, but I know certain principles. You know, when I, when I get upset and snap at people, because I still have that way about me where if I get angry, I'm usually fine until I explode. <laughs> and it takes the fun out of it because I know immediately if I've done the wrong thing, I know I have to make an amends immediately. So I'm constantly thinking through what is the battle I want to fight. I have a friend who was texting. I was texting back and forth on some political argument, and he took the other side. And he finally got to the point where I'm like, I don't think we're going to agree on this, but I just don't want to fight with you. Mm, like, I don't want to win an argument with friends. I'd rather lose the argument and keep the friend. Yeah, it's such a different way of looking at life because we go from being on the defensive to just putting ourselves into the stream of life and allowing things to happen and it's such a calming way to be it's that for me it's when I stepped into recovery through the process of going through the 12 steps and cleaning up my side of the street the way I get to live now is this when I'm running well it's a constant state of ease and contentment like I'm I'm not fighting anyone or anything anymore. And it's just such a peaceful way to live, which is so, so polar opposite from the way I used to live my life. This is a cheeky question. I know the answer, but I want to know, well, I'd love for our audience to know, why at almost 10 years sober do you still go? I get a thrill from helping other people. It's why I do a podcast. It helps me more to help other people. And I think about the new person. What would I want when I was new in a meeting? Because we've talked a lot of good things about AA. There are a handful of people where it is personality over principles. And there are some grumpy old men and some things that I have heard that I'm like, whoa, don't say that. So I want, I go and I want to give somebody new the recovery and the idea of the right type of recovery that they can have. I want to be an example. I feel it's important for me to do that. Mm -hmm. And then there are times that I do get something out of those meetings. I'm like, wow, I really needed this. But it's a lot of, mm -hmm. I have a responsibility to do this still to help other people because it's the only way, you know, I can't take the ladder up behind me and okay, I got sober, so none for you. It really is more that I get a lot more help now helping other people and then there are just people i like to see i'm not going to see them unless i go to this meeting and it's an opportunity just to connect with my friends yeah i was taught really early on that you've got to give it away to keep it and right. i do find that every single <clears throat> opportunity that i have to take another woman through the steps or to get into the big book or just to take a phone call throughout the day i'm strengthening my own recovery as well you know it's it's a give take. Uh, it's a deal that we make that, you know, often I think we, we just get so much out of that opportunity. And when I was able to become other centered instead of self centered, that relief that I was looking for at the end of a bottle, that's where I found it. That's where I find it these days. It's, you know, I don't need to drink a bottle of vodka to feel relief and peace. You know, I get that from putting my hand out and helping somebody else with absolutely no expectation of anything in return. I could be a terror in my past. 
So I've gotten a lot nicer now because I'm living more by these principles. But I could be the biggest jerk on social media. I It's very easy for me to tear you apart skillfully with a scalpel. And I don't want to be that guy to lift myself up by bringing you down. So it's a lot easier for me to be nicer to other people and to practice a lot of listening, to think about how can I build somebody else up with trying not to get something back from this. And that does make me feel better. Mm, yeah. It's amazing to hear you describe that because I, I know you as nothing but being so delightful, but I suppose that's just such a testament to the recovery work that you do, the fact that you are such a pleasant, joyful person to engage with. But there is that, you know, everybody else, it's that Jekyll and Hyde. We all have yeah. that other side to us. So, so our friend Jill came to me one time and she told me about someone, whether it's an influencer or somebody had something really nasty to say to her and it really upset her. And I immediately grabbed my phone and I was going to find this person. And the way I was going to cut them apart would have been legendary. And I just had to put the phone down. I'm like, Jill, I was about, because you're my friend and I felt bad that you were upset. I was going to destroy this person. And I realized mm -hmm. I can't do that. I can't be that person anymore. Yeah. And I put myself away. But like, that's, I will tell you, that's my biggest trigger now is if, if you're my friend and somebody attacks you, mm -hmm. that will make me go into a murderous rage. It is definitely mm -hmm. a trigger of mine. And I've learned to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put the thing away because this is going to destroy my brand, who I am. It's going to make me look like a fraud. I should not do this, but it's hard. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And hate begets hate and mm -hmm. it just would fuel the fire. Nobody is going to feel good at the end of that. And again, it's that no. beautiful tool that we get given, which is to pause when agitated and just rethink, question the conditioned thought, and then make a decision that moves you towards the person that you're aspiring to be rather than further away from it. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a journey. Hey, I, I am by no means the perfect person mm. in recovery. I am better than I was last year. I hope to be much better tomorrow. It's just accepting that I'm on a journey. There is no destination. Oh, I love that. Yeah, we are. We're all on a journey here and we're just striving to do better each day. Matt, there's obviously still a huge stigma around addiction, trauma and mental health. And that's what we're fighting here on Behind the Smile to remove that stigma. How do you think we can work to reducing the stigma that's out there? I love this question because I think we do need to destroy the stigma. Imagine if, so if we, we, we talk about that second A in AA, anonymous, the anonymous thing that is there around the traditions and the steps, not as something to keep us sober, but as the solution to a problem that if they knew I was an alcoholic, I'd be shunned. So to welcome people in to try and get sober, will put a shield over them, but it shouldn't have to be that way. So mm -hmm. I think what helps break the stigma is there are some people that have to put themselves out there and show what recovery looks like and show what good life looks like. Sometimes I put my last name out there. Sometimes I don't. If, if on the podcast, you know what my, my last initial is, it's pretty easy to figure out who I am, but I try and be as close to the traditions as possible. If you're going to do a podcast and do it well, you kind of have to put yourself out there and market it. So that makes it difficult. But I think a lot of this is you've got to show what good life looks like. And these are normal people. 
and be a good example out there. That will help. Mm. And I think that's where the online community is actually really helpful. I'm not really on TikTok too much, but I am on Instagram. And the people out there on Instagram, it seems like especially, boy, I'm going to sound like an old codger saying this, but the young people, the people in their 20s (laughs) who are out there, they don't seem to understand that shame. It's not really about, you know, well, what am I afraid of here? And I think we have an opportunity with people who are younger, those people in their 20s coming up of being that influence that if it stays this way, I think that shame thing's going to kind of go away. But I think Mm -hmm. sometimes we have to just take a risk and be confident, tell people that we have this problem. I have, I work on it and life Mm -hmm. is better because of it. And that you see Mm -hmm. the life afterwards of how good this person is and how they have it together, that the stigma of the past can be broken. I love that. That's such an awesome message and you know it's one that I'm very much in support of and, yeah, thank you. Thank you for all of the work you do putting yourself out there and showing that, you know, this this sober life is possible and it's magical and something that there's no there needs to be no shame around it whatsoever. I agree. Matt, there's one final question that I would love to wrap up on today. Now that is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live your life today happy, joyous, and free? Oh, wow. That's such a good one. Um, you can't disrespect me. Mm-hmm. Don't mock my recovery or don't get in the way of it. Mm-hmm. And... I would say try and lift somebody up. Do something selfless to help somebody who's less fortunate. And that doesn't have to mean somebody down their luck. It could be somebody who's a friend is having a bad day. Mm. Instead of sympathizing, how can I empathize? Not try and solve their problem. What can I do to take a step back and say, I understand how you feel? Yeah. Why don't you just talk to me? The power in just holding space for someone, just being an ear can be so powerful. Yep. Mm, I love those. Thank you so, so much, Matt. That brings us to the end of our conversation today. I've loved every minute. Oh, Matt, this has I been can't awesome. thank you. Yeah, I know. We say here on Behind the Smile that when we recover loudly, no one needs suffer in silence. So like I said, you are just amazing and I can't thank you enough for all of the incredible work you do. And thank you for just being the kindest person on the internet. Oh, thank you, Ash. This has been lovely. Take care, Matt. You too. A big thank you for tuning in today. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by hitting the follow button and leaving a rating and review. Each rating and review helps this podcast become more discoverable so more people can hear these stories of strength and hope. Together, we will continue to remove the stigma around mental health, trauma and addiction. Remember to reach out to those you care about and I'll be back next week. Until then.